If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is due to some scheduling confusion and some technical issues and time zone issues and something having to do with the uh, rotation of Mercury. We didn't have as much time to talk to my guest as I had hoped or wanted. The good news is he's a great guest. I'm actually recording this intro after we had the conversation because I didn't want to waste any time. I didn't want to take any time out of our conversation with useless chit-chat or, or, or throat clearing at the beginning, which is exactly what I'm doing right now. But now I have to pad things. Anyway, so we have Daniel Hanan, Wonderful historian, uh, former member of the European Parliament. I don't have his bio in front of me. He's a he's a writer and a journalist, and he's got a sort of his, his foot in a whole bunch of different fields. Uh, man of many hats, Doctor Anand. Great to have you back. How are you? I am well, Jonah. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I've always seen you as a uh, look on the bright side of life kind of guy. More of a not, not in a completely the Monty Python sense, but like, you know, looking for the optimistic kind of thing. And I've noticed a strain of dyspeptic concern in some of your writing of late. And I figured we should have you on so we could discuss. Um, how do you how do you see things as, as a keen observer and lover of America? Yeah, I mean, so, so you've got my number. Uh, all right. I mean, I. I was very much a rational optimist in the Johann Norberg, Matt Ridley, Stephen Pinker school. But my optimism has taken a bit of a knock with the lockdown and the response to the lockdown, the continuing authoritarianism after it. Now this really apparently well-sourced talk about World War Three and so on. I mean, it's one thing for Trump to say on the brink of the World War Three, but, but when you're hearing the same thing from generals and, and serious strategists. So I'm wondering whether we... We sh- I mean, I think, you know, I think you and I were both in the, broadly in the cheerful camp. But you know, I was thinking back to those, the, the, the two great books that defined the, the, the optimistic movement, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker and The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. They were both published in 2011. And I'm beginning to think that 2011 may in fact have been the peak 
right, of, of the rule of law, liberty, peace, etc. And it's interesting to look at what has happened since and why. So it's funny you say that, because I've been having this conversation most, re- most recently with my wife about how America lost its sense of humor in 2012. Um, and as, as a historian, uh, you know that 2011, 2012, that's rounding error. That's basically the same moment. And, uh, up until about 2012, there were all these sitcoms on, in, in, in American life that could make fun of hypersensitivity to racism, that could make fun of progressives for being, uh, so humorless and that kind of thing. And then like overnight, and this is also around the same moment that Jonathan Haidt, who I think, He's not in the rational optimist camp, but he's he wants to be right, and because uh, he's data driven, he's he's optimist adjacent. That's right. That's right. And um, he thinks basically the date where we started to ruin all our kids was around 2012 as well. And so it's just starting to feel. I think you're right that there is something in the water. Then maybe some of it has to be coincidental because you can't talk about what's going on on the international stage and what's going on and the end of TV shows like 30 rock in the same necessarily in the same context. But it does feel like we took a wrong turn around then. And I, I suspect that some of it, at least in America has to do with the fact that Barack Obama was reelected, but all the talk about him being this secular Messiah who was going to redeem America of its sins and all that went away. And there's been this bitterness about that in, uh, in a lot of places. And it also brought out a lot of bad stuff on the right. So I think there's, I, th- I think that's, that's, that's very true and important. And the way in which, uh, previously apathetic people were energized and involved by the Obama election, which at the time I thought was a good thing. Actually, I'm now beginning to think it was a bad thing. I kind of, the world when everyone was apathetic was actually happier in many ways than the world where people get really very angry and upset about subjects about which they know very little and or have got the wrong end of the stick. I mean, I think there are, there are two obvious candidates for what began to change um, around about 2011, 2012. And by the way, this isn't just you and me saying that, you know, you couldn't make that episode of South Park or whatever. This is there are measures of this, right? There's, there are various international league tables that look at how is liberal democracy on the increase or, or is it retreating and so on. And they, they all they all identify some turning point round about the first half of that decade when uh, the democratization stopped and began to go into reverse. So I think there are two candidates. One is a, a cultural uh, shift, which was, that was the real beginning of Twitter, wasn't it? Everyone suddenly started having these opinions on everything. And being defined by their politics in a way that would have been un- unthinkable before, uh, and I also think that, by the way, was a was a a playground for foreign propagandists. Right. If you're if you're trying to discredit news sources, sow dissension, and delegitimize the U.S. state, Twitter is made for you. Right. Twitter and affiliated uh, or similar pr- platforms. The other candidate, though, and this one I think is maybe a little bit underexplored, is the global financial crisis and the reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So all of my life, I had listened, you know, ever since I was a student, I'd listened to Marxists saying, capitalism is a racket. It isn't a real thing. It's just a word that the rich use to preserve their entrenched interests. It's all about keeping the ruling class on top. And that 
all my life until the global financial crisis seemed to me demonstrably false. It, it was it was not a point of view that you could uh, hold in conjunction with the observed facts. But when the bailouts happened, I think we saw something really unexpected, which is that the Marxist critique kind of looked to be a little bit vindicated in the sense yeah. that we were we were taxing low and medium income people to rescue some very wealthy bankers and bondholders from the consequences of their own mistakes. And it really did look as though the whole system was a racket. And to, to some extent, it seemed that way accurately. And so I think that discredited a lot of the norms and values on which the market system addressed it. And I think we can we can trace the descent into more protectionism, less globalization from then. And I'm afraid with that, almost always goes a, a shift towards more aggressive foreign policy. Yeah, there's a there's a paper that made the rounds a lot at AI about 10 years ago. It's from the journal uh, European Journal of European Political Science, or European Journal of Political Science, one of these things, where they looked at every financial crisis going back to like 1820 and found that the kind of financial crises or every recession going back to 1820 and the ones caused by financial crises of the sort that we had in 2007, 2008. Led to authoritarianism. Led to huge long tails of populism, right? And for obvious, for some, in retrospect, obvious reasons, right? You feel like you worked hard, played by the rules, and then you got screwed by the elites. You know, if you lose your house over something like that, you don't forget it overnight, you know? Um, and I think that, so I, I do think there's some structural reasons for that. It, you did say, so I, I still wanted to, the only reason why I want to circle back to something you said, because one, I agreed with it, and two, I think I want to write about it now that I think about it and I don't want to forget about it. So I think this, so I'm a, as I, as I think you are, I'm a big microcosm versus macrocosm guy in the Hayekian sense and that like the important things in life are closer to home and that, and that the rules of the microcosm of friends and family and community can't be applied to the extended order of liberty. Uh, you need, you know, you can't get the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft mixed up too much. And so when you said something about how what looked like apathy turned out to be rather healthy. I think this is a really important point to make because when, when, when pundits and activists bemoan political apathy, what they're bemoaning is that they can't put asses in the seats for their projects. Right. And most people who are apathetic about politics aren't apathetic about their businesses, about their families, about the things that actually have meaning in their daily lives. And so for me, it has always been a sign of political health to a certain extent to have low voter turnout because that meant you didn't feel like you had enough at stake in an election to bother to vote which is you know people saw that as a sign of sickness or lack of civic engagement in some cases it might be but in other cases it's actually no we've got better things to do right it's a great problem to have you you, you know you see those so these historic elections, queues and queues of black and white people together in, in the first democratic elections in South Africa, or Afghan women waiting under sort of awnings in the shade for the first time. And, and, and this is kind of held up to shame us, isn't it? You know, why can't and But actually, I'm thinking, you know, in that situation, apathy is a great problem to have, right? I, those Afghan women would love to have the luxury of not really needing to bother because, okay, it might very marginally affect, you know, the spending per pupil in school or something but not probably not even that right so what what a, what a good problem to have and and i think that that microcosm versus macrocosm thing and one of my favorite observations uh was from pj o'rourke his his famous aphorism that everybody wants to save the world nobody wants to help mum with the washing up right um wouldn't it be a happier world 
if, and I say this not just as a father of teenage girls, if people were were, 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 were a little bit more focused on the, the practical things instead of getting really very upset about issues that are completely outside their control. So, you know, in the, in the US, there was the first Obama and then the Trump phenomenon. People became very, very polarized by red and blue. Here it was Brexit. But the coincidence of timing makes me think that actually it would have been something else. If it hadn't been those things, it would have been something else because we were primed by changes in screen use, changes in education, whatever it was, to to become these hyper-political and sort of existentially unhappy, alienated creatures. And, you know, that, that that's bad for society, but it's also very bad for the kids who are spending all their time online, you know, getting furious about about you know Nagorno Karabakh or something, which is you know is not uh, is not something that any of us realistically can do anything about. Right. There's a great character in you'll your Brit. You'll correct me. Is that I believe it's Blake House, Bleak House, where Mrs. Jellyby cares passionately about these poor Africans on the banks of some river and does everything she can to raise money to help them, while she utterly ignores her own children. Who, who suffer from neglect, you know, and there is, there's always been that, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a big part of like the Greta Thunberg-ism, right, thing, which is they lie about, you know, the bumper sticker says act locally, think globally. They want to act globally and not think locally at all, right? Exactly. And, you know, it's a unconstrained vision in the sort of Sowellian way. Exactly right. And also, you see, I, but I, I, I have, I have uh, squirreled away from our last conversation your phrase, negative polarization. Um, negative for everybody. I mean, obviously, you, you were using the phrase literally to mean people getting excited about owning the other side. But how negative is that for you? You know, hatred is never a healthy emotion. It, 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 it eats away at you. And to be encouraged in this way to define yourself by whom you don't like is, I, I just think it, it just makes everybody grumpier. And so, so I mean, this was this is something that happened. I observed it very strongly in the immediate aftermath of our Brexit referendum, not in the run-up to the vote. That was the funny thing. During the referendum itself, I was out campaigning every day, manning street stalls, campaigning. And, you know, you more often than not, you'd run into the other side with their blue, stronger in t-shirts, and we'd wish each other luck, and we'd take selfies together. And it was all a perfectly civil and civilized conversation about, you know, sovereignty, money, migration, law, whatever. After the result came in, it, it suddenly shifted into being a culture war in exactly your phrase, negative polarization. So it became about whom don't we like? Whom, who are the bastards on the other side whom we imagine to be typical of the other team? And then delete as appropriate, you know, ignorant working class oafs who fell for unscrupulous demagogues or sneering snobs who secretly hate their own country. Now, I'm guessing that American listeners will recognize something of that division, right? It, 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 which makes me think it wasn't really about Brexit. It isn't really about Trump. It's about something else that was looking for a peg on which to be hung. We see the same thing across Europe. We we, we see it in a number of countries. And, and uh, in a way, actually, the interesting thing is to look at where, where has that not happened so much? Um, and the outstanding examples, I would say, of the places that have, have remained free from this negative polarization to a large degree are the, the, other, the other big Anglosphere democracies, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. They are still fairly, with all their problems, they're still pretty civil democratic polities. 
Yeah, although you did see during COVID that trucker strike thing get very American very quickly. Um, but I, I generally, I think you're probably right about that. You're right. And I just want to explore that for a second because not, not, be, not, I, I'm actually very interested in Canada and I think the Canadian Tory leaders. You're the one. I knew there was someone who was really interested in Canada. <laughs> I just find it the most neglected, fascinating, fascinating, and actually totally brilliant country. But, you know, you would not believe, Jonah, going to a Hustings meeting in a, in a, a writing, as they call them in Canada. I mean, the, the level of politeness that they all take for granted is, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you'd finished. Please carry on. Oh, did I, did I misunderstand you? I, take that I mean, it is, it is beyond anything. And, you know, uh, as you say, this is a country that is very much prone to all of the cultural breezes that blow across the border on anti-vax, on migration, whatever else. And yet the political system has remained completely solid, immune to all that, almost completely. Uh, nobody seriously thinks that if the other side wins the election, they're going to kind of cancel future elections or impose some kind of dictatorship or whatever. You don't get any of this, this fear that you get uh, on both sides in the US. None of this lock them up. Uh, and I, I don't know why that is, but one candidate is that because Canada has a constitutional monarchy, no one really has the power to take complete control. There's a referee in the room who says, hang on, this guy obviously won, and here's the limit as to what he's allowed to do. And I wonder whether, that's obviously true of the other two uh, sort of old dominions, the other two Anglosphere democracies, I wonder whether that maybe takes the heat out of politics a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. I'm, I'm not sure I completely buy it. I mean, sure, there's something there culturally, right? And maybe there's a chicken or the egg thing insofar as the culture that built up around a monarchy then also has the monarchy to look to to reinforce it sort of catalytically. But like the whole point of the American system was to make it so that no one could have the kind of power to do what they're talking about either. And yet millions of Americans have convinced themselves that the other team, once they get into power, will do exactly that right i mean like the whole point of checks and balances and divided government and 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 um faction against faction was to prevent this exactly the fear of tyranny and but the fear of tyranny is friggin everywhere in america these days and um i think it's you know just to confess my priors i think it is more grounded in reality against from the left aimed at trump than it is at Joe Biden, you know, because like the critiques, and I say this even though the left has cried wolf for a century about Republicans being fascists and would be dictators, you know, Truman did it to Dewey, they all did it to Goldwater and Reagan, they did it to Bush, and so it pains me as a good right winger by training and and culture to say the Democrats have a point this time about Trump, but I think they have a point this time about Trump. Meanwhile, on the right, people are talking about Biden, the Biden crime family or the Biden regime, you know, doing all of these terrible things, while at the same time, they they claim that he can't find the bingo parlor at the home, right? You got to pick a lane. Is he a criminal mastermind uh, and would-be dictator, or is he an adulpated, out-of-it, you know, guy with dementia? You can't, he can't be both. I think that's right. And, and, you know, you have to also allow some uh, empirical data in here, right? Um, in his presidency, Biden has not tried to pack the Supreme Court. He has not tried to uh, admit DC uh, or Puerto Rico to the Union. He, you know, he hasn't tried to change the Constitution. He's, he, to borrow another 
Peter O'Rourke phrase, he's he's wrong within the normal parameters of wrong, right? Um, I think that's right. It, 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 but I mean, we, you and I have discussed this before. The terrifying thing is not that you have some two-bit Caesarist of the kind that the founders envisaged. It's that you have possibly the majority, possibly a plurality of the population cheering it on. And that's mm-hmm. That's come almost out of nowhere, and I so some, something has changed in people's brain chemistry, right? Some or or no, it, it may be it may be the way the education system is working. It may just be that the sort of civics that you and I absorbed is no longer there. It may be uh, you know it may be related to the fact that during the lockdown everyone spent too much time staring at screens because there wasn't much else they could do. I don't know, uh, or or it may be, and I really wouldn't rule out. Deliberate enemy propaganda. Um, that the, the, there's ample evidence that that you know hostile powers do this, uh, not because they're trying to rig an election, but just because they're trying to make everyone angrier and 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 you know remove the sense of authority from the whole system. But something has happened in the U.S., uh, and I fear that the rest of the world may follow. This, this is this is another reason why I'm interested in Canada. You know, they the the leader of the Canadian Conservative Party is in some stylistic aspects populist in that he you know he he frames the the battle as uh you know ordinary blue collar salt of the earth canadians against sneering elites however his his politics are impeccably classically liberal um he is about you know tax cuts low inflation devolution of power uh, stronger local government, uh, removal of restrictions, making it easier for immigrants to work, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, he, you know, you know, if pushed for an opinion, he will allow himself to express the view that women have wombs, right? But he doesn't really, <laughs> he doesn't focus on the cultural wars, right? He, his main interest is in tax cuts and helping people buy a home. And he is vastly far ahead now in a country which historically has tended to be left-leaning. So I wonder whether uh, there's some some lesson there about if you give leadership uh, on the right, if you if you express the the, the 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 outrage constant in a different way, you give it a different channel. Uh, it doesn't need to be statist and you know strongman cultist. It doesn't need to be about Fuhrer princip. It could be about values closer to yours and mine. I mean, the, the supreme example of this, I think, is probably Argentina, right? The, the stylistically, Javier Milei is pure Trump. Uh, politically, he couldn't be more different. Right. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland, chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I got dragged into by a friend of mine who was teaching, wanted me to like lead a seminar about the rise, the, so the new rights critique of con classical conservatism, or I should say classical, the classical liberalism element of conservatism. Um, you know, Adrian Vermeule, these kinds of people. And so I, I read a bunch of stuff that otherwise I would not have. And um, I'm just kind of curious, is there any similar post-liberal intellectual murmurings going on in the UK that are similar to the stuff that, because there is a real yeastiness to this intellectually on the American right. I think it's going to fizzle out eventually, but it's, it's a real thing. Is there, is there such a thing over there as well? Yes. Yes. I mean, uh, in no small measure inspired by the people you've just been talking about. Uh, so, but the, the, the differences are, I think are instructive. So there was a big NatCon conference here uh, last year run by a lot of the same people who were involved in the NatCon movement in the US, you know, with, with the president of Heritage there and Yoram Hazoni and a lot of names would be familiar. Um, but the British version was much more, um, I wouldn't say fusionist, but much more tolerant, much more broad church in the sense that the organizer here was a lovely man, Cambridge uh, academic um, and a philosopher, said, look, the, the, the minimum entry requirement here is that you believe in national sovereignty. You know, that's, that, that's, that's why, you, you know, if you, if you think we're better off in a federal Europe, no, but you've got to believe in the, in the nation state. Beyond that, our differences will be debated and foregrounded rather than hidden. So our differences on immigration, on free trade and whatever, let's just, let's just put all that on stage and, and make it a, uh, an intellectually vigorous exercise. So very, very different from what uh, the equivalent meetings are sometimes in, in the US. Um, I actually spoke at that meeting and I, I, I had the interesting challenge of how do I sell market liberalism to a basically NatCon audience, not entirely. And I don't know whether this was the right thing to do, but I did it by by talking about Edmund Burke, uh, who, you know, pin up for all these guys and quite rightly, a brilliant conservative thinker and the father of the Anglo-American conservative tradition. But you know, a buddy of Adam Smith thought that Smith's book was the best thing he'd ever read. Completely free. You know, the one thing that everyone quotes about Burke, you know, I'm your representative, not your delegate. You know, the issue on which he was disagreeing with the electors of Bristol is that he could see that it was in the interest of Bristol as a whole to allow freer trade with Ireland, even though it was against the interests of some of these producers in Bristol who wanted to get rid of the, the competition, right? He was a serious, proper Whig uh, free trader. So I afterwards, I had some fascinating conversations with these guys, very polite, clever people in their twenties, typically. And I think where they come, I think where they come from is not. Um, it's something that you can you can reach a, an agreement on. So usually they would say things like, "Okay, but what if your free trade ideology conflicts with the national interest?" And I, I, and I would say, well, look, it, it isn't 
really an ideology. It's a very practical and pragmatic thing that we've worked out. It's actually quite counterintuitive, but we see that it works. And what I mean by it works is it benefits almost everyone in the nation. So this literally is the, if, 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 if by national interest, you mean what is best for the nation as a whole, not for some vested interest or producer group within the nation, then this is it. And and, and you, I think you can persuade people of that. But my goodness, we've got to go back to square one and start because we've lost a whole generation. For sure. No. And the, um, you know, my approach to that is to flip it around. It's like, you tell me the exceptions to the rule and we can argue about those. Right. So like nuclear sub manufacturing. Okay. Let's talk about how free trade has limits there. But you know, avocados, <laughs> like whatever, you know, just like we always do it. We always want to start from the premise of you have to prove free trade is good for anything where rather than explain to people, explain to me the specific things where it's not good for everything, you know, and, and start there. But you, you must have found this right. So just on this, you must have found as I have that, that the left are very, very bad at predicting your opinions. You know, they, mm-hmm. they attribute a whole bunch of convictions to you that are a million miles away from what you actually think. And I mean, I'm sure we do it the other way around as well, but not nearly as much for all the clever reasons that Jonathan Haidt has explained and, and proved in his... We're book. better at tur- ideological Turing tests than they are. I, I, yeah. If only because we're so marinated in a left-of-center culture that we can hardly avoid some sense of what makes them tick, but the reverse is not necessarily true. Now, I think that is, to a large degree, true of the younger generation of national conservatives when talking about classic uh, classical liberalism. You know, uh, they, they attr- you know, they attribute beliefs to us that that I've never come across in anyone. Um, you know, particularly the, the, this supposed obsession with materialism and money. And I, I I constantly find myself having to say, guys, you know, I have spent my life around libertarians. I have genuinely never come across anyone who thinks that you get more pleasure from a big bank balance than from playing with your kids or listening to Beethoven or going for a nice walk in the country, right? Um, what we're arguing about is whether that increase in GDP enables you to do all of these other things more. Right, and it's, right. it's not a, it's not a, and genuinely, I think that surprises people to, to learn. They, they, they've, they've got a, an, an odd caricature of, of what a free marketeer is. No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the, the argument ad homo econ- economicus um, is used to be a trick that the a rhetorical trick of the left. It's increasingly a rhetorical trick of the new right. It's still a straw man, right? It's still like no one has ever referred to homo economicus as an actual way of thinking about human beings in their full spectrum, right? It's always been about in a chart <laughs> about how they're going to behave when the widgets cost this much and don't cost that much and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that, that's, by the way, that is the classic example. People say the trouble with your free market economics is that human beings are not perfectly rational. Yes, right. that's the whole bloody thing that we've been trying to explain. <laughs> right. No, it's the same thing with the, the checks and balances stuff is the whole, we, the whole reason, like, this is why Urban Crystal used to talk about the American revolution as a successful revolution is because it's the only one that ever took human nature into account, you know? Um, but I, I do, I, I do want to throw something at you uh, in the very short time we have left. I've written about this before. I, t- I had a great conversation with Yuval Levin about this a while ago. Edmund Burke's, uh, you know, in the impeachment of Hastings, uh, he has this wonderful speech, the birds of prey speech, and where he explains, and I'm open to your correction because you know this stuff better than I do, but he basically explains that, look, yeah, what we're doing to the Indians is not good, but we're also, what we're also doing to our own young men is terrible. They are learning all the wrong habits of the heart. They're learning all the wrong understandings of how to behave with power. And they're bringing that home. 
and they they become birds of prey over there and then we're going to re- we're going to bring them home here and to me this is a really important thing that I try to impress upon these young own the libs new writer types is that the crueler you are to those people the more you're deforming yourself the more you are giving into the corruption of hatred and and Arthur Brooks makes this wonderful point about how Anger is good. Anger is fine in a democracy. You need anger. Someone's, you know, when people are doing wrong, anger. But you can get angry at your kids. It doesn't mean you don't love them. Contempt is poisoning to the soul. Because contempt says, I know I can dehumanize you. I can de-unperson you. Um, you can talk about, as Trump does, that the people who don't like him are vermin. Right? It went, that is... I think the thing that is corrupting a lot of the politics in America, and maybe it's spilling over over there, is the the corrupting power of contempt, which gives you permission to do anything and say anything you want to fellow human beings and fellow citizens. And I think that's sort of part of what the Birds of Prey, you know, to just tie it back to Burke, was getting at as well, is the is is the habits of the heart that come from thinking that your enemies are not worthy of any respect. It's such a good point. I think it isn't that isn't that kind of relationship counseling 101. This is what all the sort of marriage guidance people say. A partnership can take any amount of argument. Because if you're arguing, even when you're arguing very angrily, it suggests that you care enough about the opinion of the other person that you 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 want to change their mind uh, because they're they're still important to you as another person. It's when you say, ah, oh, sod it, she's always doing that. It doesn't matter anymore. That's that's when it's over. You know, and I think that that that's a very good point. Something similar has happened in the electorate, and it's it's a short distance between despising your opponents and thinking of them as enemies. And at that point, you know, you will delightedly go along with removing their civil rights, incarcerating them, whatever, and you know, hence all these lock them up chance at rallies. It's, it's pretty scary. So there's also something which we don't really have a lot of time to get into, but, and, and you may not have caught this because I don't know if with the time difference, you've just been able to spot this on crazy Twitter, but almost overnight in the last 48 hours, a big chunk of the sort of grifter, crazy new right crowd have convinced themselves that Taylor Swift is a, uh, psyop put forward by the Pentagon and the deep state to set her up as a celebrity so that she can then endorse Joe Biden. And one of my favorite things is that there are an enormous number of people on, on Newsmax and on Fox talking about how sick and twisted this kind of idolatry is. And in an era, you know, it kind of reminds me of hate is going to hate, hate, hate. Yeah, it's like the scene in Conan where he says, you know, two years ago, it was just another snake cult. But like now, you know, like this idea that like, Trump worshippers who are who can forgive anything um, because he's Trump are outraged that people would follow the heat of and anyway my only point is I don't I think the only period in American life that you can look back on and find anything similar is that period of the the know nothings where you know and people forget that the know nothings were not actually people who knew nothing it was that was their response when people asked them about right. their conspiracy theories and but that kind of deep widespread instantaneous acceptance of conspiratorial thinking i've never seen it in my lifetime and i'm i'm really hard pressed to find historical parallels isn't it but doesn't this really tie back into where you started which is the politicization of everything yeah 
I mean, isn't it just extraordinary that being a Swifty is now a political statement rather than an aesthetic or musical statement, right? Um, And, you know, you you made the point that humour stopped in 2012. I mean, actually, in Britain, I think it was it took a slightly different form because we have this rather cynical and sardonic uh, side to us, which uh, it can be deeply unattractive, although it can be funny. Politics suddenly became a subject for banter. Everyone had these half-assed takes, these slightly sneering takes that were supposed to be funny on every political event or, you know, every every artist, you know. And to the you know to the point I mean I, the, it was a few years ago that Kate Bush came out as a Tory and was so <laughs> hounded by this that she had to kind of retract and pretend she'd never said it and, you know and what a, what a kind of bizarre sick world right I, I mean I I long for the days in a way and I, I wish I'd appreciated them more at the time when people would just say nah not interested in politics you know my thing is Formula One or whatever that thing was that wasn't that great I agree I I. I, I... This, politic, this podcast is called The Remnant for a Reason. Um, all right, my friend, I know you have a heart out. You got to go. I could talk to you forever. I hope you'll come back. Always a pleasure. Okay, so uh, Daniel had to go. Um, as I warned in the beginning, um, I still think, given how fast we talk, we got a lot of stuff in there. I'm always grateful to have him on. And there's a lot of things I still wanted to talk to him about, um, more about, you know, the nitty gritty of international affairs and you know, what's going on in the Mideast and all those things, because he knows a lot of things about that kind of stuff. Um, but we'll just have to have him back on um, to talk about that another time. Other than that, uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.